chasing inside your mind Question for all time, is it you? So gravity defied And storm the darkest night, is it you? Who will save us? That's everyone's thought right now. We're seeing what's happening. The world is literally on fire. There is hits from all sides and all places. And we think, who will save us? Well, if you're expecting Gandalf to turn up, if you're expecting, <laughs> you know, someone to run in on a white horse, if you're expecting someone to come in and just flip tables for you, if you're expecting someone to just come in and do what? Make it like it used to be? Was what used to be okay? Used to be you were asleep. Is that what you want? So right now we're in a position where everything is completely uncertain. We don't know what tomorrow brings and we don't know how it will be. But I will show you other times where destruction has come and then someone came in to save. And if you look in just 70 years, how that work out. You see, what used to be was a nightmare, but you thought it was sleep. Uh, no, you thought it was real. It was actually sleep. You call it sleep. It was a nightmare. You were just going with the motions and getting some things done because, you know, that's all you could do at that point. So the question lies on who will save us and what will be coming. To understand that, we have to see what's really going on in the news. People that um, are paying attention to the news see that there's a lot going on that people are not talking about. Like we've been talking about RICO for a while. No one else has. Until someone made the case public. It's buried, right? Now everyone's gotten on Pacer and paid the fee to get it. But what's weird is, is that there's a lot of battles being fought that no one is talking about. Yet for some odd reason, you're hearing your pundits and your news focusing on the things that the mainstream media wants you to focus on. New viruses, Ukraine, and Ukraine is horrible right now in the sense that there's so much resistance that Zelensky is allowing his people to die literally from starvation, right? rather than say, you know, this was already done. <laughs> so weird. Where to begin? Well, one thing I can tell you is that they're not allowing candidates to run across the nation. I was one of them, but you can't stop me. The war is only over when you say it's over. Hmm. You'll see what I mean with that. Another thing is we're seeing a lot of people across the nation that have uh, runs, have been uh, successfully able to battle their way onto a ballot, and then legislatures are making it so that they can't run. They're changing the rules after the fact to disqualify people. 
In Tennessee, new legislation would require that anyone seeking federal office in the state of Tennessee should have lived in that state that they want to represent for at least three years. President Trump nominated Morgan Ortiz to run for Tennessee's 5th District. But he only moved to that state last year. And now Governor Lee is supposed to sign it. See, he's already on the ballot. But for some reason, it's trying to invalidate his run. No one questioned my residency when I served our country in the intelligence community, the Trump administration, nor in the U.S. Navy Reserves. And President Trump certainly didn't question my residency when he endorsed me for this seat. That was a response that Ortagas gave. But like I say, they changed the rules after the fact. Anyone that served in the intelligence community that has served President Trump is actually a big threat. They will change the rules and violate laws in order to ensure that good people cannot make change. And that should outrage everyone. Everyone. But how? How can we outrage average Americans that just stick to the whole orange man bad? Because all they see is headlines like in the New York Times where federal judge finds Trump most likely committed crimes over 2020 election. He didn't commit any crimes. In fact, it was thanks to his friend and fantastic attorney and America's mayor, Mayor Giuliani, who told him not to follow a plan that someone presented to him. On Monday, a federal judge ruled that former President Donald J. Trump and a lawyer who had advised him on how to overturn the 2020 election, they're referring to Sidney Powell, most likely had committed felonies, including obstructing the work of Congress and conspiring to defraud the United States. So when you have federal judges doing things like that, you got to wonder... What do they have on them? Why would they be so bold as to take a political position? How can they so blatantly say that something like that has occurred and with such confidence? The judge who said this was commenting on this in the civil case of the lawyer, John Eastman, marked a significant breakthrough for the House committee investigating January 6th. On the Capitol. Now, if you guys remember carefully, we had talked about Nixon and the missing minutes and what really happened a while ago. We kind of touched on that. And it was a very interesting story. And the reason is, is because they are determining that, you know, it seems like there's a lot of missing time. Missing time on conversations that the president apparently had. And that's a little bit odd, one might say. What do you mean missing time? I don't understand. Well, apparently on January 6th, the phone logs almost sounds like they're setting him up like Nixon, doesn't it? Uh, Of President Trump have a seven-hour gap. But the gap came from 11.17 a.m., between 11.17 a.m. and about 7 p.m., right? And Robert Costa and Bob Woodward put that report together. So for seven hours and 37 minutes, there are no call logs. None. 
But Ali Akbar made sure to give him records, didn't he? You see, this is why uh, we're having a problem. And um, Caroline Wren, cover, 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 cover. So the, the gap that they have, right, is based on the fact that Senator Mike Lee of Utah said last year that President Trump called him during the Senate session to certify President Joe Biden's electoral victory. Apparently, he was believing that he was calling Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama. Tommy Tuberville actually objected the certification of the electoral results. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy also said he spoke with Trump during the attack and urged him to accept his election loss. Now, the gap they're now comparing to how President Nixon had an 18 and a half minute gap in White House recordings during the Watergate break-in. And it's not just because Bob Woodward was involved in reporting both. It's just a coincidence, of course. Stop it, Tori. Just a coincidence. The lengthy gap was tweeted um, uh, the link, during the lengthy gap. Um, was It was actually tweeted by Harvard law professor Lawrence Tribe and compares it to the Nixon. So now we're going to see a lot of that coming. And... Oh, wow, it's 25 times as big as the gap as the Nixon tapes. And oh, dear. The National Archives previously had said that some White House records had been torn up and had to be taped back together. Um, the archives also suggested that Trump may have violated federal laws by improperly taking White House records to his home in Mar-a-Lago, including classified materials. This is what the National Archives are saying. That would make sense because in the COVID-19 bill, they threw a lot of money to copyright and... Uh, uh, you know, National Archives in general. Thank you for the rumble rants. I appreciate it. I just popped on there to see what you guys are doing because it's difficult uh, for me to swap uh, between the software that I'm using to use rumble. Thank you. So that's pretty weird, right? David O'Carter of the Central District of California says that the illegality of the plan was obvious. And this is why Trump said, uh, no, we're not doing it. And Mayor Rudy Giuliani said, yeah, you're definitely not doing it. That is illegal. But this judge reinforced how illegal the plan was, even though President Trump said it was illegal himself and wasn't going to do it. It's so bizarre. Now, here's another thing. And this is where Ali Akbar comes in. Um, Business Insider actually published an article earlier today. Federal prosecutors are zeroing in on a single Trump tweet that may have been the catalyst for right-wing extremists to join the Capitol. Now, the infamous tweet is the, it'll be wild, wild protest. Do you remember that? Ali Akbar took down the whole website. I archived that shit where he used Joe Flynn's face, President Trump, all these other influencers and put up wild protest website, right? He did that. He did that. He did that. Don't forget that. He did that. Prosecutors are looking at a December tweet as a call to action for right, far-right activists. Trump urged supporters to attend the January 6th rally, tweeting, Be there. It will be wild. The January 6th panel is also gathering evidence to prove that the tweet was part of the catalyst in the riot. Everyone should thank Ali Akbar for that. 
Because that was exactly why he did it. This is why he created that proximity, which in his own words said, well, I didn't really have contact with those people, but sometimes you just use other people's name to make your platform look bigger. And then it does become bigger. This is what he said, right? This is what he said. That's the problem. Because, you know, Akbar links to someone else and then someone else. And speaking of Akbar, he's still holding up my case, but my case is moving along pretty oddly. I got uh, some weird correspondence in my case today, which was shocking. And I'll read it to you. It was actually quite shocking because I didn't expect it. I had subpoenaed Jen Psaki uh, for documents during her time uh, at the State Department. The subpoena clearly asked for specific information, documents, right? Uh, obviously, electronically requested. Um, and it wasn't at all, it had nothing to do with her job at the White House at all. I clearly said, please produce any and all documents, including but not limited to digital and or written memos, notes, text messages, emails, and communications between you and CIDL voting systems discussing Ukraine's support package or elections between December 2013 and November 2014. Produce any and all documents, including but not limited to digital and or written memos, notes, text messages, email communications between March 2014 and June 2014 with Ukrainian officials pertaining to elections. And produce any and all communications with Robert Storch discussing Ukraine elections between November 1st, 2013 and November 30th, 2014. My questions were very specific and warranted that so because she is a third party and these are questions that will assist me. Thank you so much for the ramble rants that will assist me in my case. That is a subpoena I sent out to her. It took us over a month to serve her and a lot of money using these services to track her down. And after she was served, um, I believe she was served on, let me just check the date so I don't misspeak. She was served on the 1st of March, but she responded on the 29th of March, which is interesting because that's eight days out of service, meaning that she's late eight days. Therefore, I believe I might ask my attorney if there is a possibility that I can argue that she has missed the deadline to respond and therefore she waives her right to object to the subpoena. I will put this subpoena on the screen so you guys can see it as well. That way you can um, see it as well as um, me reading it out for those uh, that are uh, watching and uh, that are listening to the podcast. Right, let me widen this so it's bigger. So it takes up the screen. I just hope it does take up the screen. Let's see. There we go. So here's the letter. And it comes from the Department of Justice, Civil Division, Federal Programs Branch. So in essence, our federal tax dollars are now defending Jen Psaki. Jen Psaki is being represented by the Department of Justice in my case. And here's what it reads. Okay. It's so fascinating when you look at it. Dear Mr. Newman, this letter responds to the February 11th, 2022 subpoena, Dukas Takam, 
directed to the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, that you sent on behalf of the plaintiff in the above captioned matter. That subpoena sought communications or other documents exchanged between Ms. Psaki and Seidel Voting System discussing Ukraine support package or elections between December 2013 and November 2014. B, Ukrainian officials pertaining to elections between March 2014 and June 2014, which is not on the subpoena, so that's weird. Uh, That's super weird. That is very super weird. It is not on my subpoena. Thank you for that, whoever wrote it. And then Robert Storch discussing Ukraine elections between November 1st, 2013 and November 30th, 2014. On behalf of Ms. Saki and the White House, who are not parties to this litigation, and pursuant to Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 45, I object to your subpoena on a number of grounds. So, first of all, I read you what the subpoena had, and it did not have anything about Ukrainian officials between March 2014 and June 2014. It was actually March 2014, I believe, and further than that. So in other words, the Justice Department has made an appearance in my case uh, defending Jen Psaki and the White House. So on behalf of her and the White House. But you know, (laughs) I'm just good at at Googling because I know exactly what I asked for. Exactly what I asked for. Exactly what I asked for. So... As you can see, right, this, um, how, how did Akbar put it? That there is no case. You guys don't know the law and how it works. Well, kind of is. Kind of is. And by the way, Akbar's little spies that are listening, TikTok, you've got two more days to make an appearance. Okay. Two more days to make an appearance. So after crossing us an arm and a leg to get her subpoenaed, here's what they came back with. They cited the federal um, a rule of civil procedure, which is not applicable. And um, well, that provision makes clear that, um, you know, the subpoena ducatus may command the production of documents, electronically stored information or tangible things at a place within a hundred miles of where the person resides, is employed or regularly transacts business as a person. Huh? And then the federal rule also says that your subpoena commands the production of documents to you at your office in Brentwood, Tennessee, which is outside of the 100 miles where Saki resides, is employed, or regular transacts business in person. You know, this is so much wordplay. So first of all, um, 100 miles, she, she was a federal employee. That's national access. I believe that we should argue that. But regardless, he says that um, subject and without waiving the above stated objective, I hereby advise that Ms. Saki has nonetheless conducted a search for responsive documents and no responsive records were filed. Found. Okay, so that's bullshit that there's no records found because we have public records that were found discussing all these matters, right? But that's okay because I believe that they've waived their right to object considering that they took so long. And they took an extra eight days and you do not get a pass because you work for the White House. And when the White House responds to a case, that's a big deal. And anyone that thinks it's not a big deal, well, you have no idea what you're talking about. And yeah, see ya.
So I think I should argue she should have responded by the 21st of March, considering she had the whole Department of Justice at her disposal. There should be no excuse that she took over eight days and therefore she waived her right to object uh, to the subpoena. I believe that's something that can be argued and won because the law is the law and therefore whatever. Now, while they argue that, oh, discovery hasn't happened, so you can't have it. It's like, yeah, this subpoena is excluded from that. So sorry. But the funny thing is, is that a lot of, you know, people are, are, are looking at this and they don't see what this defamation case is turning out to be. It's turning out to be a real pain in the ass to some people. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Who knows? Uh, those who give up essential liberties for temporary safety deserve neither safety or liberty. Benjamin Franklin said that. Hmm. I'm just disheartened a little bit. Because, you know, all our headlines are about food shortages and drug shortages across the nation and across the world. <laughs> Sri Lanka doesn't have any medications. Uh, we've got Colombo without food, right? We've got India talking about low provisions. Uh, you know, we've got tankers stuck. What are, what are they trying to do? And then we have the queen rolling out to do a Prince Philip tribute with Andrew as well by her side, right? Uh, it's the most insane thing. And people are just showing that Will Smith smacked the comedian. Like, and that's okay. You smacked him. What a loser. What a loser. In other news, as you know, in South America, all hell is breaking loose. But you wouldn't know because no one's really talking about it, right? All hell is breaking loose, right? We have Ecuador's lasso who's trying to use decrees because he keeps failing on legislations. Uh, we've got a second impeachment attempt against Peru's president in just eight months, right? So nuts. And then the president of Mexico is floating the idea for the public to pick who their electoral authorities are. Sure, let's just put MS-13 in charge couple of other cartels and it'll be fine and then el salvador's going nuts because they've got a spike in gang killings <laughs> nothing going on there right nothing going on there and then the solomon islands that we talked about months ago that now everyone's like holy crap china's there it's like solomon islands just want to survive and no and they don't want the globalist help and they'd prefer to have the cover of china than the cover of the u.n and right now, the prime minister of the Solomon Islands is like, what's your problem? Why are you getting in our business when we're doing security negotiations with China? That's very insulting. Mind your business. He literally said that. That is what he said, you know, when um, he had the security treaty to sign. And so Australia, New Zealand and the U.S. are like, no, you can't do security negotiations with China. And he's like, I'm oh, sorry. It's none of your business, okay? And during his parliament speech, the prime minister of the Solomon Islands, you know, um, uh, you know, leaked a security document that was a draft that would give details on the final deal that they're working on. So, you know, he's like, we're not being pressured. This is all right. And, you know, obviously the, um, the switch, you know, obviously the Solomon Islands, right? Um, they're not being pressured. 
Right. But they're like, there's no intention to ask China to build a military base. Uh, you know, they're not being pressured to, to have China build a military base in the Solomon Islands. And remember, the Solomon Islands support, you know, um, uh, Taiwan from 2019 and not China. So people are finding it odd that China wants to build a base at the Solomon Islands and they're like, oh, are they blackmailing you? And he's like, no, they're protecting us. And the thing that they're doing is they're covering their asses. They're like, look at the shit you've got everybody else into. We don't need that shit right here. We don't need that right here. You get China's a little bit, you know, they need commerce. They need it to go through our area. We're going to let them build a base here. This is the, these are the negotiations they're doing. And the thing is, is that while it may seem good at the moment to be like, yeah, you know, I'd prefer China than the UN. They're imploding. They're all losers. They're all pedos. They're all crazy. Fuck them. I'd totally be on it, right? Uh, in the future, though, see, short term may work out for you. Long term, not so good. Not so good. Because the thing is, they don't even want to take over the Solomon Islands. They could give two shits what the people on the Solomon Islands do. The only thing they want is to be able to control the traffic that goes through there because it is an insane amount of consumer goods that go through that strait. I showed it to you on a map. I explained it to you. And there it is. And now it's all coming into focus. Boom, 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 right? It is it is quite an exciting day to see that I gave you guys a lot of information to see what is to come so you can actually see who knows and who pretends to know. And I want to play one of those videos. So as you all know, um, obviously, I, I think it was shared. So I'll share that one first. I want to share a discussion that um, Chuck... Uh, <laughs> That Grassley said and what he talked about, you know, because Brian Cates was all over this. I have receipts. I know. Yeah, you don't. Here we go. Senator Johnson and I will produce new records to show additional connections between the Biden family and the communist Chinese regime. Our report exposed extensive financial relationships between Hunter and James Biden and Chinese nationals connected to the communist regime. These were Chinese nationals connected to the Chinese government's military and intelligence's service. One of those individuals was a person by the name of Patrick Ho. According to reports, Hunter Biden said of Patrick Ho, quote, I have another New York Times reporter calling about my representation of Patrick Ho. Then Hunter Biden says the F word, denoting a spy chief of China who started a company that my partner, who is worth $323 billion, founded and is now missing. End of that quote. We'll get into more detail with respect to Patrick Ho in future speeches. We'll do the same with Gong Wen Dong, another close associate of Hunter Biden's, who was connected to the communist regime. Now, Hunter Biden's reference to, quote, my partner, end quote, is an apparent reference to Yi Jingming, Yi had connections to the People's Liberation Army. Yi had a company 
called CEFC, which had multiple variations. Today and in future speeches, Senator Johnson and I will re simply refer to that company as CEFC. Documents show that CEFC's corporate mission was, quote, to expand cooperation in the international energy economy and contribute to national development, end of quote. Now let me emphasize that word national in that quote, national development. CEFC existed for the communist state. Indeed, records show that CEFC is dedicated itself to serve China's national energy strategy, developing national strategic reserves for oil, and now I quote, partnering with centrally administered and state-owned enterprises, end of quote. Records prepared by one of Hunter and James Biden's business associates, a James Gilliar, say the following about this company, CEFC, quote, at the time China was hungry for crude, but its state-backed companies were having difficulty closing some deals abroad. The optics of China's state-backed giants marching into a country to buy and extract oil weren't great for Central Asian politicians. This paved the way for private firms like CEFC, which can strike oil deals in Europe and the Middle East, where state Chinese state-owned enterprises could bring political liabilities, end of quote. Documents also show that CEFC, quote, is building an energy storage and logistics system in Europe, end of quote, to connect China, Europe, and the Middle East. Now, you may ask why? Plain why? Well, I told you why. If you look at all the train systems and the pipe system I talked about in 2018 and 2019. See, the writing was on the wall. We had everything we needed. The problem that we had was that we didn't have real analysts. We didn't have real journalists. And we don't have people keeping us up to speed with what's going on around the world. So when shit happens, it's like, well, it reminds me of that time when, you know, everyone was going about their business and suddenly... India and Pakistan start shooting missiles at each other. And everyone's like, oh my God, how'd that happen? And it's like, really? Stop. Stop. To serve, quote, China's ambitions to have overseas storage locations connected with world markets, end of quote. The document further states that CEFC's investments and their bank division has investments in the energy sector, quote, which are in tandem with the government's $4 trillion one belt, one road foreign investment program, end of quote. So, CEFC operated under the guise of a private company, but for all intents and purposes, 
to, uh, as an arm of the Chinese government. Hunter Biden and James Biden served as the perfect vehicle by which the communist Chinese government could gain inroads here in the United States through CEFC and its affiliates. And these inroads were focused on Chinese advancement into the global and U.S. energy sector. sector. Hunter and James Biden were more than happy to go along, of course, for the right price. So now let's turn to the first poster, which shows bank records that hasn't been made public before now. This is a portion of a document that we, meaning Senator Johnson and I, will release in full. The topic of this poster shows a wire transaction, August 4th, 2017, from CEFC to Wells Fargo Clearing Services for $100,000. Now look at the bottom of the poster. This is the underlying data of this transaction. It states, quote, further credit to Owasco, end of quote. Owasco is Hunter Biden's firm. Yeah, well, you guys already knew that because we talked about that over a year and a half ago. But here's what's funny, right? Um, can you see the date on that? I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> what is that? That's January 2017 when the criminal investigation opened up to Patrick Ho, who made that wire transfer, <laughs> right? And then they saw that it went to Hunter Biden. Ergo, they were just looking at Patrick Ho because he's a foreign national and he may or may not have been involved in the cash money on a plane to fucking Iran because his passport data kind of shows that too. You know? um, anyway, so as they were investigating him, right, they obviously came up to Hunter Biden. So when, uh, you know, you hear people saying, Dory doesn't know what she's talking about. I have the receipts. Kate's your fucking receipts are bullshit. This is a receipt. First month of 2017, Owasco owned by Hunter Biden. That is when a criminal investigation was opened up. And huh, I'm going to tell you this. Little tidbit. So tomorrow, I just wanted to say, um, I will not be doing a show because I have to unexpectedly go somewhere um, outside of my pre-programmed trip that I was supposed to be leaving Thursday night. So I just wanted to say that tomorrow I'm not going to be doing a show because of that. And having said that, oh yeah, what was the little tidbit? There are a few people that are on my lawsuit. Uh, not directly like one person because there are organizations as well um, and people. But I can say that about 65% of the persons that will be turning up in my lawsuit may or may not have some secret sealed indictments on them. Just saying. So just saying. I just thought I'd say that. I just thought I would say that just to let go. So yeah, so it was really unexpected because when, you know, when that, when that, when that call comes in, you're like, I'm coming. 
because you can't not go, right? When you have to go somewhere, right? You just gotta go. Now, there doesn't, there is no middleman in this transaction. This is $100,000 from what is effectively an arm of the communist Chinese government direct to Hunter Biden. So a second question, question to the liberal media and my Democrat colleagues who accused us over the last two years of distributing Russian disinformation, is this official bank document Russian disinformation? Now, beyond this document, in future speeches, Senator Johnson and I will show you more transfers between and among such companies as CEFC, Northern International Capital, Hudson West Three, Hunter Biden's Owasco, and James Biden's Lion Hall Group. In doing so, please keep in mind the players in this game. Hunter Biden, James Biden, Yi Jingming, Gang Wen Dong, Murren Yang, and Patrick Yo, to name a few. Oh, oh. All of these individuals mixed and mingled with related corporate entity, en entities over a period of years and respect with respect to millions of dollars. Now, the next poster. The next one. Those connections are illustrated by the second poster. See, what's funny is I think that's in an article of mine. Well, I wrote so many of them, I get tired of citing them because people don't read anymore. They just need big posters. People should be reading more. And I'll be putting more on the looking glass as the days come 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 to a draw. Because the thing is, putting shit out there and just having people read random shit doesn't make sense. What um what is important is that it's done correctly, that it's cited correctly, and that you get it, that someone actually sits down and puts a thread together. It's not just exporting shit and PDFs, right? That's the way it is. But I, I think these signatures and shit, I've already put it in there. And you know it's going to be fun. Wait till you get to the Louisiana shit. <laughs> now that's going to be fun. That is going to be fun. You know, super fun. Today, I was really, 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 really busy um, getting a lot of things done. And obviously, because this unexpected trip tomorrow, um, I, damn, I have so much laundry to do. I'll probably be up all night doing laundry so that I can take with me because, you know, I'm constantly, if, if anybody comes to my apartment, are, all you're going to see is like five suitcases rotated, right? And, <laughs> but I know that this weekend I'm going to have fun. So I'll be really happy about that um, starting Friday when I go to the destination that was pre-planned that I would attend. Um, I know that this weekend I'm going to have fun. Um I'll be sans my my children. One of them can't come because she's um, she can't get leave, and the other one, you know, should stay home and study because she's got a lot to do. But anyway, um, if you guys remember, it was uh, actually um, Grassley that I sent a lot of my stuff to as a whistleblower in. Uh, the times of yore where I was talking about, you know, election fraud, but you know, I don't know what I'm talking about. Of course. Anyway, let's, let's finish this up because we're going to get to the next one, which is a little bit more fun. Um, and for those of you that are um, sending me 
uh, Rumble Rants. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Which I made public last November. It's an original bank record with one typographical error and all. Here you have Hunter Biden, Gong Win Dong, and Mer Mervyn Yang executing an assignment and assumption agreement together. Now, a third question to those who accuse us of disseminating Russian disinformation, so especially to the liberal media who are the ones who ought to be policing our government system to make sure that everything's done honest. They shouldn't have to have members of Congress giving all this information out. But is this official record Russian disinformation? In our next speeches, we'll show you more records that haven't been seen before. Records that undeniably show strong links between Biden family and communist China. Today is just a small taste. I'd like to know one thing before Senator Johnson takes over. He's going to describe to you the ridiculous attacks that we received claiming that our reports were Russian disinformation. On March the 16th of this year, the New York Times unwittingly substantiated our reports by reporting on Hunter Biden's connection to foreign corporations and his potential criminal exposure. So what Senator Johnson and I made public last Congress is now a prevailing fact pattern that even the liberal media can't ignore any longer and falsely label Russian disinformation. I'll turn it over. Yeah, the liberal media will not be able to hide it anymore, <laughs> but not because, you know, they have to because <laughs> they're going to have to usher in whatever the post carnage plan they have is to usher in. Right now, let's see some more stuff, you know, because I obviously don't know what I'm talking about. And, you know, I just Google shit. Listen to this. Is it the laptop? Wait, before the close-ups, I want you guys to pay attention to the exchange of a very well-versed script. Sir, I'm not here to talk about the laptop. I'm here to talk about the FBI cyber program. You are the assistant director of FBI cyber. I want to know where Hunter Biden's laptop is. Where is it? Sir, I don't know that answer. That is astonishing to me. Is, has, has FBI cyber assessed whether or not Hunter Biden's laptop could be a point of vulnerability allowing America's enemies to hurt our country. Sir, the FBI cyber program is based off of what's codified in Title 18, or um, Title 18, Section 1030, a code which talks about computer intrusions, right, using nefarious intent. Network well, you've talked about passwords here. I mean, Hunter Biden's password on his laptop was Hunter 02. He drops it off at a repair store. I'm holding the receipt. Wait, let me tell you something about his passwords. He used the same passwords over and over again, where he would be like Biden and all these birthdays. And get this, one of his DOD Pentagon passwords, I kid you not, was Hunter 001. No joke. From Max Computer Repair, where in December 2019, they turned over this laptop to the FBI. And what now you're telling me right here is that as the assistant director 
of FBI cyber, you don't know where this is after it was turned over to you three years ago. Yes, sir, that's an accurate statement. How are Americans supposed to trust that you can protect us from the next colonial pipeline if it seems that you can't locate a laptop that was given to you three years ago from the first family, potentially creating vulnerabilities for our country? Sir, it's, it's not in the purview of my investigative response. Not part of his purview. <laughs> I can't stop looking at Matt Gates's hair. Just listen to the conversation, and it seems very well put together. But, but that is shocking that, that you wouldn't, as the assistant director of cyber, know whether or not there. And now pay attention to the guy to the left. Well, your right, as you're watching him, of Gates. There are international business deals, kickbacks, shakedowns that are on this laptop that would make the first family suspect to, to some sort of compromise. Mr. Assistant Director, have you assessed whether or not the first family is compromised as a result of the Hunter Biden laptop? Sir, as a representative of the FBI cyber program, it is not in the realm of my responsibilities to deal with the questions that you're asking me. Ha has anyone at FBI cyber been asked to make assessments whether or not the laptop creates a point of vulnerability? Sir, we have multiple lines of investigative responsibility in the FBI. They're all available in public source. Well, I would think you'd know this one. I mean, I would think that if the president's son, who does international business deals, referencing the now president with the Chinese, with Ukrainians, I mean, have you assessed whether or not the Hunter Biden laptop gives Russia the ability to harm our country? Sir, again, we can do this back and forth for the next couple of minutes. I don't have any information about the Hunter Biden laptop or the investigation. But should you? I mean, you're the assistant director of FBI cyber. By, my, by the block and line chart? No, sir, I should not. Who should, who should we put in that chair to ask questions about this laptop that FBI has had for three years? Sir, I'm not, I'm, I'm not in a position to... Make a recommendation who should say. So you don't have it. You don't know who has it. You don't know where it is. You're the assistant director. You know, earlier you talked about whether or not you were the Grant Hill or the Christian Leitner. It sounds like you're the Chris Weber trying to call a timeout when you don't have one. So I mean, who is it? Do you even know who has it? Do you know who we should put in that chair to ask these questions to? No, sir, I don't know who has it. Well, it, could you find out and tell us? You're going to have to give us briefings, thanks to Mr. Liu and Mr. Massey's question, about whether or not the FBI was taking a $5 million test drive on the Pegasus system that was being used to target people in politics, people in government, people in the media. Oh, oh, look at that. Almost like I knew. Almost like I knew. Almost like I knew. This is why I educated on the fact yesterday that this is coming out. Because when you use weapons of war against your own people, well, there you go. See, it's so weird. I talked about both those things. <laughs> so, so bizarre, right? Yesterday. But, you know, of course, I'm just really good at Googling it because I'm in his mind and I can predict things. I think, come on, stop. That little winged horse is in everybody's reach. Nobody knows if I could use it and look at all your telegram, get into your phone and fucking look at everything. That's how widely used it is. The little winged horse as, <laughs> is, <laughs> is pretty broad, okay? And they watch everything. They watch everything. But you know, this is just another one of those coincidences. 
Um, let's just listen to that again. What did they do with Pegasus? No, sir, I don't know who has it. Well, it, could you find out and tell us? You're going to have to give us briefings, thanks to Mr. Liu and Mr. Massey's question, about whether or not the FBI was taking a $5 million test drive on the Pegasus system that was being used to target people in politics, people in government, people in the media, people in American life. So will you commit to give us a briefing as the assistant director of FBI Cyber as to where the laptop is, whether or not it's a point of vulnerability, whether or not the American people should wonder whether or not the first family is compromised? Sir, I'd be happy to take your request back to our office. Gosh, I mean, will you advocate for that briefing? As sure. a, you, you will? I will be happy to take your request back to FBI headquarters. Well, will you, do you believe that that is a briefing that the Congress is, is worthy of having, I guess? Sir, I'm, I am, I'm not going to answer that question. Right? I'm here to talk. The invitation, a, a sir, the invitation says oversight of the FBI's cyber division. It does not say anything. Well, well right, but I mean, this is, this is a cyber asset. This it's is a, a point of vulnerability. Asset. If there are passwords, if there are business deals, if there are references. No, here's how he should have put it. This is where he's getting wrong information. The vulnerabilities come from the fact that he has linked up and smuggled people through borders. The vulnerabilities in national security are the fact that people have access to understand how you reset your passwords on DOD, White House servers, etc. That's the only vulnerability. Let's get this straight. Hunter Biden didn't have any fucking secret passwords to anything important. But this is an issue because here you'd go having this laptop for three years. And let me tell you something. If I want to learn how to penetrate a power grid or the White House or anything, I need to find out how and what servers I can follow through and what pages and what links are used. They will tell me what platform they use. They're using Edge, Akamai, whatever, Amazon. So that way I can get in on that and say, all right, when someone resets their password, they have to go through there. Maybe we can put a worm over here. Maybe we can fish like this. Maybe we can recreate the pages far enough so that way we can penetrate that platform where the password reset is happening. Hence why, you know, some really good phishing attempts, you know, have at least four or five pages that are replicants, right? And you can totally obfuscate on the website stuff because people that'll get it from something that looks like a legit DOD or MIL or .us or .gov email, they'll just click on it, especially when they see that the first couple pages are all the same. The last one can be like, hey, we revamped our site, you know, no, 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 put your new password here and then you're, you're done, right? You're super done because then you're putting all your credentials, put your CAC, uh, you put your number in. I can probably with your number because of other things that Hunter did on his laptop, replicate the CAC, uh, you know, the CAC methods that they use for the CAC cards. Then suddenly I can recreate one. It's a whole hot mess. That's how the national security is. That is what it is. It's not just that. Okay. It's not just, he didn't log on to like, you know, the DIA site or anything or the FBI though. If I remember correctly, he did receive LEO reports and that had a lot of, you know, metadata on one of those documents. But besides that, that is a real issue, but it's not such a big deal if the FBI actually took it and changed stuff. Now, 
I'm seeing, because I popped over to the thing. Thank you for the rumble rants. I really, really appreciate it. I see that it says CCP took out Fang Fang. Well, I did tell you before they took her out. Oh, who's Fang Fang? I remember that. Fang 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 on my telegram. And then the next day, oops, plain, oops, she's dead. But, you know, another coincidence that it, <laughs> whatever, whatever. I'm just so tired of people just saying Google to things that could harm our country like you can't even sit here right now and say that you know that there's not a point of vulnerability maybe there are other crimes maybe there are tax issues or whatever but as it relates to our i mean it is the first family sufficient cyber infrastructure to protect you don't even know if they're compromised tell you what mr chairman i seek unanimous consent to enter into the record of this committee the contents of hunter biden's laptop which i'm in possession of I'm not. Hmm? There's no objection to that. So I, say, I can't say no objection. Say you object. Ne I've never had. I will object pending further uh, investigation. What's the basis what? of the objection? It's a unanimous consent request, and I object pending. Well, I have a subsequent question. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I seek unanimous consent to enter into the record the receipt. It may very well be. From the Mac shop. It may very well be entered into the record after we look at it further. Very well, Mr. Chairman, uh, I'm, Mr. I have a subsequent Ms. unanimous consent. Second, second, oh, I'm sorry. Mr. Chairman, I seek unanimous consent to enter into the record the receipt from the Department Mr. of Mr. Justice Chairman, this is to Ms. the Mac uh, shop. Am I next? Or, without, or am I without, next? Or? Without, without objection. Huh? So weird. <laughs> so weird. That little bald guy with, you know, whispering in Adler's ear, object, object, because he wants unanimous object. You got to go over there and you got to say no. You got to say no. You got to say no. See, it's pure panic. It's super pure panic. You know, that's what happens to corrupt people. Yeah, you because know, they've been caught before. Here's, uh, <laughs> here's, here's a guy that really likes me. Take a listen. A long time ago, all those people, except for the guy sleeping on the one end, pay attention. Very much. Gentlemen, my, my view is couldn't you couldn't have, have passionate debates in this room without the great work that the men and women of the intelligence community, community do to preserve our freedom. And I just want to start by saying we're very grateful for that. Director Brennan, in 2014, the CIA conducted an unauthorized search of Senate files including the emails of Senate staff investigating the CIA's use of torture. The CIA Inspector General later stated that the search involved improper agency access to Senate files, and a review board that you appointed concluded that the search resulted in inappropriate access to the committee's work product. You initially denied that the search took place, but the reports of both your Inspector General and the review board show that uh, this denial was at odds with the facts. After the facts were publicly exposed, the CIA even wrote an apology letter that you did not send. Now, senior officials from the NSA, the FBI, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence have all testified that it would be inappropriate for their agencies to secretly search Senate files without external authorization but we still have not gotten an acknowledgement from you. So I think it would be important, I'd like to hear from you, I'd like to set the record straight that this would never happen again. Would you agree that the CIA's 2014 search of Senate files 
was improper. This is the annual threat assessment, is it not? Yes. Um, <clears throat> I think, Senator, as you well know, there were very unique circumstances associated with this whole affair. These were CIA computers at a CIA lease facility. It was a CIA network that was shared between Senate staffers conducting that investigation for your report, as well as CIA personnel. When it became quite obvious to CIA personnel that Senate staffers had unauthorized access to an internal draft document of CIA, there was an obligation on the part of CIA officers who had responsibility for the security of that network to investigate, to see what might have been the reason for that access that the Senate staffers had to that document. They conducted that investigation. I spoke to the chairman and vice chairman about it. I tried to make sure they understood exactly what the challenge was that we had. We conducted that investigation. I then subsequently referred the matter to the IG when the Senate leadership was concerned about the actions of CIA officers. I also subsequently convened an accountability board. And I think you, if you were to read those reports, and including the accountability board, it would you would see that it's decide, determined that the actions of the CIA were reasonable, given the very unclear and unwritten or, or un, unspecific uh, understanding between the committee and CIA at the time, uh, in terms of Mr. what... Mr. Director, my, my, my time is short, but that's not what the Inspector General... Or I respectfully the disagree. Board. I respectfully I'd disagree like, with you. I'd like to read the exact words. The exact words of the review board were it resulted in inappropriate access to SSCI work product. And your inspector general reached the same conclusion. And so the question here is, is when you're talking about spying on a committee responsible for overseeing your agency, in my view, that undermines the very checks and balances that protect our democracy, and it's unacceptable in a free society, and your compatriots in all of the sister agencies agreed with that. Now, you disagree? Yes, I think you mischaracterized both their comments as well as what's in those reports. And I apologize to the chairman and the vice chairman about the de minimis access and inappropriate access that CIA officers made to five emails or so of Senate staffers during that investigation. And I apologize to them for that very specific, inappropriate action that was taken as part of a very reasonable investigative action. But do not say that we spied on Senate computers or your files. We did not do that. We were fulfilling our responsibilities. I read the exact words of the inspector general and the exact words of the review board. You appointed the review board. They said nobody ought to be punished, but they said there was improper access. And my point is, in our system of government, we have responsibilities to do vigorous oversight. And we can't do vigorous oversight if there are improper procedures used to access our files. My time is up. And, Senator, I would say, do you not agree that there was improper access that Senate staffers had to CIA internal deliberative documents? What I can was that not inappropriate, I, unauthorized? I can tell you, having talked at length to our staff, everything that we determined they did was appropriate. But I asked about CIA conduct and two reviews, the inspector general and your review board said it was improper. Yes. And I'm uh, still awaiting the review that was done by the Senate uh, to take a look at what the staffers actions were. Separation of powers between the executive legislative branch of the Senator goes both ways. 
And as I said, I apologize to the chairman and the vice chairman for the very specific, inappropriate access that agency officers who were investigating this incident uh, made to those emails. Very limited, inappropriate actions. Overall, that investigation was done consistent with our obligations, consistent with the law, consistent with our responsibilities. And I do think that you're mischaracterizing the, the full tenor of the, the both the accountability board and the inspector general's report. Pretty hard to mischaracterize word for word quotes. They I'll, use I'll, the word improper action. I'll, I'll exercise something here. Record. You know, it's so fascinating. We gave you those computers, so we're allowed to, to, to use them and, and look at stuff. But whatever. Let's take a quick break. We need a quick break. Let's go. You can't escape Tears are falling Like blood and rain The thunder's shaking And it's gonna break A storm is coming That you can't escape A storm is coming Definitely, definitely, definitely. Wow. So I hope you guys had enough time to fill those coffee cups because now we're going to sit down and talk about some real stuff. And uh, a lot of people are banging on the drums of war, but uh, fail to think of what may come of that war. You know, what, are the, what is the aftermath? How are you going to fix this? We see many people pushing XRP, right? A lot of people bought into that and you have to think about it. See, there are some people that are very good at money. Um, some people that, you know, very synonymous and heirs to very big places have been urging people to purchase gold and silver. And um, money moves are being made like crazy, crazy, crazy. Today, out of all days, just uh, earlier, just a little bit earlier today, um, something huge happened, right? A big, big account, right? We're talking big account. A Bitcoin address with a thousand Bitcoins. That's $47 million. Has just been activated seven years later. Huh. It was worth maybe like a little bit about half a million in 2014 when it went to bed. A thousand Bitcoins today is $47 million and it just woke up. And you know what they're trying to do? People are realizing Bitcoin isn't the way and they're running. And then you have people pushing for the XRP. Well, the world currency, as I've been saying, has been coming. Nah, let me stop. The world currency was supposed to come beforehand. 
and they kind of failed, but they had to create the infrastructure. And I'll show you how they did this through the collapse of nations, through the collapse of economies. Then these smart people all got together and said, well, this is how we're going to do it. Now, there's one guy that I really like, Yanis Varoufakis, right? And um, he's a really smart man. But you know what he reminds me of? I mean, I should say who he reminds me of. He reminds me of John Maynard Keynes. And I'm going to introduce you to that man because you should know his history. And you should know what kind of role he played with the World Bank and the IMF. While everyone is um, discussing things of, ah, during the Trump, you know, all these things happened. No, he was destroying the system they created. And what we have is that Everybody knows that the World Bank and the IMF are in a lot of trouble. They've been in a lot of trouble for a long time. And while you had many people sitting there pushing you the Nassara Jassara so you can embrace it and push the XRP so you should embrace it, right? They were obviously paid to do all that. Hello, hello, hello. Here is where it becomes nuts. You know, in order for a government to have control of their own government, meaning in order for the people who you select, <laughs> who are selected for you or you elect, however you want to see it, have control, they have to have control of the money. So if they control the printing and the issuing of the money, then they control the government. If the people control the money, then they control the government. Do you see how that goes? Do you see how that goes? So back in time... After the Cold War, oh dear, the Marshall Plan kicked in. Oh my gosh. When they defeated fascism, apparently, in 1945, they had this thing called the Marshall Plan. Oh, let's just get back to business as usual after the war and all these, you know, people, the recessions and the pandemics, And, you know, because first came the pandemic, then people started jumping off the roofs because the economy tank. We're at that point right now. Right. Roaring 20s. Right. Great Depression. People not having food. People jumping out of buildings, seeing the investments go tits up. That one. Right. You're right there. If you want to in simile. Right. Bring it. But obviously they've put it on an accelerated course right now because they're panicking because they got caught. They got caught doing other things, which stymies their plan. That was a that was a, that was a whole idea. When you have such a well-oiled machine operating for 200 years and a plan that's been in place for a long time, you can't just go and rip that plan apart. You can't just say, oh, you're going to be creating a one world currency. Oh, you're going to be destroying borders. Oh, you're going to be. Nee, nee, nee. You can't. But what you do is you're corrupt. Wrench. You did this. Wrench. You did that. Wrench. And suddenly this whole machine comes to a halt. Now, those that they write movies of and tell you what heroes they are, I want you to listen to this nice, cute, little, uh, uh, short uh, revisit of what uh, people are being taught that the Marshall Plan was in this 10-minute um, clip. Listen carefully. For a moment, the status of Europe after the, the defeat, defeat of fascism, fascism in 1945, six years of carnage with the most advanced weapons conceived to date, had left Europe in ruins. Towns were wiped off the map, and the political institutions of countries, such as Italy, Germany, and France, were devastated. In many ways, these countries, amongst others, had to begin from scratch. 
I'm your host, David, and today we will be talking about how the West was rebuilt, otherwise known as the Marshall Plan. This is the Cold War. So one possible model they could look to was the country which gave more than its fair share and arguably sacrificed the most and contributed the most to the fall of the Nazi regime. I am, of course, talking about the Soviet Union. With many socialist currents in action before and during the war across the world, the vision of the Red Army marching into Berlin and destroying the symbols of the Nazis led many to think that their way was the future. Now, imagine you're the United States, the wealthiest country on Earth. By the end of the war, more than half of all industrial production on Earth was happening inside your borders. You won the war, you have a roaring economy, but you see a rising influence of socialism in Europe. How could you counter it? Well, the U.S. decided to go a rather simple route. What if they just paid them? Now, to begin, let's go back to the video in this series on the ideological drives behind the Cold War. As I'm sure you recall, the liberal capitalist United States saw the opening of trade barriers and markets, especially to U.S. companies, as the epitome of freedom. The United States would do a lot to make sure the countries wrecked from the Second World War, at least in Europe, came back online with big, strong economies full of big, healthy consumers as soon as possible. So why not give these countries a big shot of money to get them back on their feet? The U.S. developed the first draft of this plan in June of 1947. They even offered to give some aid to their Soviet allies from the war, but these offers were turned down. Already, the wartime alliance had frayed between the two. Stalin, arguably correct, knew this money would come with strings attached. The Soviets forbid their allies and satellite states from partaking in the cash being offered. In 1948, President Truman signed into law the European Recovery Program. Today, we call it the Marshall Plan. By the time this program of aid would finish, the U.S. would give 16 European countries more than 17 billion U.S. dollars. This might not sound like a lot, but once adjusted for inflation, this is something equal to $200 billion today. This plan tracks with the way the U.S. at the time, with a Republican Congress and Democratic White House, saw economics. The predominant economic model believed that spending money in struggling economies could act as fuel to get the engine running again. But this wasn't without dissent. Some economists who believed in laissez-faire style of economics objected to giving massive subsidies. They believed it would keep these countries from abandoning what they saw as socialist policies. Laissez-faire economics is the belief an economy functions best when the state is involved with it as little as possible. Laissez-faire economics was an unpopular idea in the 1940s, with people blaming it for the Great Depression. But once we replace a few people on this portrait over here, it will get more popular. But let's rewind a little and talk about how such an ambitious economic project came into being. What effect did it have for Europe and the world? The destruction of the Second World War was particularly horrible. The continent itself is no stranger to war. Take a peek at our sister channel, Kings and Generals, for a minute to see for yourself. But this was a war of strategic bombing, the targeting of population centers, a war on infrastructure and industry. Europe was a mess, for lack of a better word. 
The U.S. shipped trillions of calories of food into the continent to keep people from starving. Millions of Europeans were refugees. They lived in massive camps or wandered the continent looking for the basics to live. Unemployment skyrocketed, and even by the devising of the Marshall Plan in 1947, Europe was showing little sign of recovering. This was a situation ripe for strikes, for revolts, and with many thinking of 1917, revolution. To the U.S., the risk of socialist overthrow was large. America, by contrast, had barely been touched by the war, aside from Pearl Harbor, attacks on some of their Pacific territories, including the Aleutians by the Japanese, and a strange failed plan where the Japanese tried to deliver bombs across the Pacific via balloons. Almost no fighting took place on American soil. The U.S. economy also emerged from the war larger than it had ever been. The production requirements of the war brought the economy back to life after more than a decade of the Great Depression. Before the war, the U.S. wasn't much of a global exporter. But now, well, there was an opportunity to find a lot of new markets, or make some. Getting Europe back on its feet was not only good for the U.S. economy, but a matter of national security. They could bring back as much of Europe back from the encroachment of Soviet influence as possible. The Marshall Plan replaced something called the Morgenthau Plan, a mission in the immediate post-war period to destroy the capacity for Germany to rearm, elect more Nazis, and start the whole thing over again. The USSR argued for a much more brutal stripping of the German industrial base. By 1947, the US was coming around to the idea of a proper reconstruction and, of course, clear denazification as the way to fix Germany. The Soviets and the Americans were at an impasse over their different goals for Germany, punitive versus restorative. The Soviets walked away from the table, rejecting all these new plans. Shortly after negotiations broke down, Marshall spoke about his plan to rebuild the economy of Europe. He cited it would contribute to political stability, an effort not for any particular state, but a mission to heal the wound of the Second World War and move on. This was the context in which Marshall offered a program of aid to rebuild Europe. Despite their walking away, in Marshall's speech, he invited the Soviets in the process. Whether this was an attempt to look the bigger country while trying to pay the Eastern Bloc out of being communist, well, that depends on how you want to read it. Stalin was a little tempted by the plan, but when he saw the aid had some strings attached, such as liberalizing trade and standards for currency exchange, he backed out. He already had worried that the U.S. would use its massive capital to take over the industrial capacity of many small nations, and to him, this did nothing but confirm it. His outward concerns were about keeping these countries free from U.S. capitalists, who would come and buy up the economic heart of independent states. But he also feared that this would put states out of the Soviet sphere. When invited to discuss the Marshall Plan, the Soviets not only did not attend, but barred other countries in their bloc from attending as well. So a bunch of meetings took place. An amount of aid was decided upon with the countries who did agree to it. The expenses were passed through Congress with little issue, save a few grumpy Republicans. Even in the Republican Party, these guys were in the minority. Congress passed the Marshall Plan and set up the Economic Cooperation Administration to, well, administer the aid. Now, with the descending of the Iron Curtain, some countries in Eastern Europe and Asia Minor were the most at risk of coming under Soviet influence. 
In Greece, a war between the king and communist forces was already underway. The first real public saber-rattling in the Cold War was in service of increasing aid for the monarchist forces there. Nearby in Turkey, there was a standoff between the Turks and Soviets over giving the USSR access to the Turkish Straits. As a body of water which connects the Black Sea to the Mediterranean, I'm sure you can imagine the supreme strategic and economic stakes at play here for the Soviets. So the first place's Marshall Plan aid arrived was in these two hotspots to counter Soviet influence. The funds made it to the rest of Europe, who then used said money, as the US intended, to buy American goods for reconstruction. So their loan went out of America and then came right back. That's not even mentioning that one out of every $20 for the Marshall Plan went to the obscure European nation of the Central Intelligence Agency. Wait, what? Yeah, in case there was any doubt this was a program to counter Soviet influence, the CIA got a lot of Marshall Plan money to infiltrate and disrupt socialist movements in the countries they were helping. You know, for freedom. So, did the Marshall Plan reinvigorate the European economy and stop the Soviets from taking over Europe and making a real-life version of the game Red Alert? Well, if you have a solid answer to that question, I would suggest you write it all down. It would be, one, a bestseller, and two, likely get you many awards. Now, Europe did bounce back rather fast from the beginning of the plan up until the US stopped it in place of a much more critical economic venture, fighting in the Korean Peninsula. It did help immediately. Food was scarce and times were rough in Europe. But historians have been debating for decades over the extent Marshall Plan money helped with Europe's rapid recovery. The US and European countries had incentives to sell the program as working, both at home and in their partner nations. Historians are led to believe the effects were exaggerated. But there are other side effects which had massive impacts on Europe. The Commission started to deal with the recovery often gets credit for putting Europe on the path to integration. This would eventually become the European Union. The stipulations about liberal markets and the overt and covert sabotage of socialist movements did keep communism out of Western Europe, especially in places such as Austria, which was largely surrounded by Eastern Bloc countries. Today, the Marshall Plan, much like the New Deal, is often used to refer to the government giving massive investment in building or rebuilding entire cities, countries, or even continents. So the cultural impact of the Marshall Plan can't be undersold. Also, like the New Deal, it was the high watermark of the Keynesian period of American economics, when the American way involved investing in economic ventures to get the economic machine running. This idea would come under fire and be overturned in the 1970s in favor of neoliberal economics. Europe and Japan are often held as examples of rebuilding nations after war and cited as a comparison example to cases such as Iraq and Afghanistan. The last thing to mention is the Marshall Plan set the borders of the Cold War dynamic and laid the foundation for this climactic struggle for the fate of the world. We here at the Cold War will continue to discuss that struggle in our future videos, so make sure you're subscribed to our channel and have pressed the bell button. We rely on our patrons to create these videos, so, so consider, consider supporting, supporting us via slash the Cold War. I totally support that channel. Now, what you heard from there was here they are devastated through war, 
here they are with a devastated economy and how they chose to fix it was to go to the hot spots and dump a shit ton of money. Now, what they did was they they went through Greece and Turkey to quell the 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 stuff, and then everything stemmed from Turkey, considering because right by the belly button of eons of economies running through there, right? Greece, Cyprus, Turkey were always in the center, you know, Egypt, you know, those coasts. So Marsh, the Marshall Plan has been put forward as something genius, right? It was um, U.S. Secretary of State George Marshall that, that, that did, you know, it was named after him, his plan. And as you noticed, they started off, they seeded the money because they supposedly wanted to keep communism out. But that country, the CIA, they claim got the money, is in this little, little shitty place called Luxembourg, hence why all the companies that Brennan, the new ones that he established and all the cycle companies are there. So weird. But anyway, supposedly they wanted to create this, but you have to understand that the Marshall Plan was the key component to actually creating NATO. And it was a military alliance between the U.S. and Europe and other nations. And this is how we created bases there. This is how we put our foot and created U.S. bases across the world. Why? Do you guys see any Indian bases in America? I'm just asking for a friend. Do you guys see any, I don't know, Maltese bases in the United States, maybe in one of our territories? No, right? Do you maybe see a base in, I don't know, Guatemala that's uh, uh, from Guatemala that's maybe, I don't know, sitting somewhere in Washington? No, you fucking don't. But we do. We have bases everywhere. Everywhere. Well, strategic points, of course. And so the Marshall Plan gave birth to that. And they monitored big cities in Britain, in France, in Germany, in Italy, Belgium, and other nations across the planet slowly in order to help them from famine and, and help them with their industries, to support those nations' transportation infrastructures, their roads, their bridges, their ports, their railways, you know, the same shit China does because there are Chinese bases in Africa, in South America, right? There's bases there. Russia has a couple, but it's mostly deals that they have, like with Syria, right? And that's in order to be able to keep the bridge going across from Russia if ever the straits were shut down. Which, by the way, you know what's so funny? That Putin is now in Turkey having talks about negotiating with Ukraine. So weird, because the Marshall Plan focused there, too. It's so bizarre. And in the next couple of days, maybe on the 31st or something, you'll hear an announcement about some new monetary system. Because this is also what came out of it. The World Bank, the IMF, all of those stemmed from the Marshall Plan. It's a story that they tell you is to stop the Eastern Bloc of Soviet states taking over with communism. But in fact, it was the CIA that was getting 5%, as they claim, probably more, right, of this money. To establish, you know, front businesses across several, several, several European countries that were designed just to further U.S. interests. Now we call it USAID, right? right? And then the Marshall Plan was tried to 
be pushed forward more than just four years of us dumping our hard-earned cash that we made on the backs of killing all these people because i don't know kind of feels like we drove hitler to that point but that's a story for another time right we made a shit ton of money as a nation during that period remember we even created china right because we sent the nationalists the chinese nationalists I mean, we embargoed their ships in the 40s. And then by the time they got the weapons that the nationalists had asked us for, you know, they lost to the commies. right? And then when they did get the ships, like three years later, losing to the Communist Party, right? Um, all the guns and shit were broken. And it's like, all right, <laughs> not like we created China or anything, right? So weird. So weird. And here we are where we're jumping in on this cryptocurrency, new currency, right? That everyone wants to get us on the digital. I mean, that's how they control you because they can't control cryptocurrency. I can, I can start my own coin right now, make my own economy and make it value to whatever dollar. But guess what? They take away the dollar. They take away the ruble. They take away the yen. They take away everything. Well, then you can't make more coins because they're not valued anymore. You see how that works? And this is where it's going. This is why they were pushing XRP and all these things to gain control, to bring you on there. And cryptocurrency is great. It's decentralized for now. But if there's no money system, huh? it's just money after that. And then how do you value the Tory dollar compared to the Joe dollar, to the Bitcoin, to the Ethereum, to the Shiba? You can't because there's not one standard. So guess what happens? That whole shit collapses too. And this is where they're taking it. And who is the mastermind behind all this? Well, you know, they're taking tips from this guy named John Maynard Keynes. You need to listen to his political theory, which changed the face of economy and created the IMF and the World Bank. John Maynard Keynes was a political economist of extraordinary optimism and vision who believed that governments have it in their power to solve some of the greatest ills of capitalism. Keynes refused either to believe in communism or in the utter wisdom of the unfettered free market. Instead, he occupied a middle course, believing that governments could, with a judicious injection of money here and a wise regulation there, smooth out the peaks and troughs to which all economies seem fatefully prone. Keynes believed that what chiefly holds back countries is corruption, knee-jerk policies and short-sightedness, but that if these three ills are corrected, then humanity can look forward to an age of incredible and lasting wealth. In a charming essay titled Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, written in 1930 at the height of the world economic crisis, Keynes outlined his belief that most severe economic problems could be overcome and give way to an age where the chief challenge for human beings would be how to occupy their leisure time in conditions of mass prosperity. For Keynes, economics was not a dull science. It was the tool with which to bring about economic security for all. Keynes's background was well-to-do, and throughout his life he remained firmly a part of the British establishment. Educated at Eton and then Cambridge University, Keynes was unusual for the breadth of his artistic and literary interests. Throughout his life, he maintained friendships with some of the most brilliant artists and scholars of the 20th century, and was an integral part of the Bloomsbury Group of writers and intellectuals. 
Virginia Woolf, for example, was one of his best friends. As the Bloomsbury Group recognised, good economics is as fundamental to well-being as good painting or literature, and in a deep sense not fundamentally different in its search for the wellsprings of fulfilment and its attention to human error and blindness. Keynes's masterpiece was written in 1936, The General Theory of Employment, Interest and Money. In this work, Keynes set out to rethink the causes of unemployment in the hope of producing new solutions to this intractable problem of the 1930s and of capitalism more generally. Classical economics gives us three reasons why unemployment exists. Firstly, and most obviously, workers are temporarily unemployed when they move jobs. Secondly, individuals might simply elect not to work, particularly if they can support themselves through some form of welfare payment. But thirdly, and most interestingly, unemployment arises when wages are higher than what employers can afford. In the classical model, it's assumed that a free market will correct this last cause automatically, and that the supply of labour and the demand for labour will spontaneously come into equilibrium, ensuring something approaching full employment. Only if some outside force were to exert itself on the market, for example, if governments set a minimum wage that artificially inflates wages, or if trade unions organise workers so that they refuse to take lower wages in a declining market, only under these conditions would equilibrium not be found. But Keynes took issue with this classical theory. In the 1930s, there were huge numbers of people out of work, as many as 3 million in Britain and 15 million in the United States of America. These numbers were just too great to shrug off as the result of people being between jobs or simply idle. And to Keynes's way of thinking, this level of unemployment was also too great to be explained by the interference of trade unions, given that during the years of the Great Depression, high unemployment had severely curbed union power. For Keynes, the real problem of unemployment lay in a lack of demand. This was not something that economists had ever properly focused on, but it became the linchpin of Keynes's theories. Classical economic theory had simply assumed that demand for goods would return by itself once wages and labour requirements had equalised. But Keynes now famously declared, in the long run, we are all dead. In other words, this process might simply take too long. Keynes argued that it was insufficient for economists and policymakers simply to advise people to accept suffering in the short and medium term, securing the knowledge that at the end of the storm, the sea would return to calm. What was needed was intervention in the economy by government in order to break the cycle of economic depression and thereby restore prosperity. Traditionally, in an economic downturn, governments would turn to matters of supply to provide an economic boost, encourage growth and create employment. For example, if interest rates were reduced, then this should encourage savers to invest their money, providing cash either for existing businesses to expand or else for entrepreneurs to establish new ventures. However, Keynes now declared there might exist a persistent belief that demand was so low that there was little point in supplying goods. In this case, traditional tools of promoting economic recovery would be useless and something else would be required. If market mechanisms were unable to stimulate economic recovery, then Keynes now argued it was the job of the state to step in and create demand by running, if necessary, a very large budget deficit in order to create jobs. Practically, this could be done by raising loans and using the money to finance vast public works that could be brought online relatively quickly. These might include building roads or railways, or else investment in other infrastructure that would not only create work for people, but which would leave a useful legacy for private enterprise. 
governments should, for Keynes, act as the primary shopper in the land, creating demand until more widespread sources of demand can return. Keynes criticised governments for the way they typically respond to downturns. Their immediate and understandable impulse is just to rein in spending. After all, this is what a household would do when money is no longer coming in. But what is wise at the level of a household is often catastrophic when applied at the level of the nation. Nations are not households in all kinds of ways, and Keynes needed to persuade his audiences to act contrary to their simpler, more basic instincts. Reigning in spending when an economy is in decline always worsens the very problem it's meant to solve. One obvious objection to Keynes's focus on government spending was the question as to who should pay for the loans. By creating the debt, would not the problem simply be postponed to another day rather than solved? Here, Keynes applied his theory of what became known as the multiplier effect. In the first instance, by creating jobs through public works, governments would save some of the money they would otherwise have spent on unemployment benefits. Secondly, the increase in the number of people in employment would create additional spending power and therefore boost the economy and tax receipts. There would be an indirect effect on businesses as opportunities to service public works programs became available. The result would be increased tax revenue from businesses as they began to once again prosper. In turn, these receipts would then pay off the debt created by the initial expenditure. That was the multiplier effect. Keynes's ability to conceive of grander macroeconomic architecture put him in high demand during the Second World War when he went to the Treasury to work as an advisor. Raised to the peerage in 1942 as Baron Keynes of Tilton in the county of Sussex, Lord Keynes led the British delegation to the Bretton Woods Conference in the United States, at which the Allied nations hammered out post-war economic policy. Not only did Keynes believe that national governments could successfully manage economies, but Keynes also believed that a global system of economic organisation was possible. He argued that, for the purpose of global trade, countries should subscribe to the creation of a new international standardised unit of account, the Bancor. Through a complex system of accounting, the adoption of this pseudo-currency would allow an internationally recognised organisation to impose fines on countries in order to discourage them from running large trade deficits or surpluses. Such a system would help to smooth out peaks and troughs in international trade. And, not coincidentally, it would also benefit countries like Britain, who, because of the cost of the war, had low reserves of gold. It was both a brilliant and self-interested idea in equal measure. But ultimately, the Bancor did not come about. The United States, which was effectively bankrolling global post-war economic reconstruction, ran large trade surpluses and had no intention of accepting limitations on these. But several of Keynes's other proposals, such as the establishment of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund to oversee and encourage world trade, were accepted and have dramatically changed the world. Testimony to Keynes's belief that national and supranational economic planning is both necessary and possible. The strain of the Bretton Woods negotiations was immense upon Keynes. In 1946, aged only 62, Keynes died of complications from a series of heart attacks. Yet his legacy lived on. In the 30 years or so after the Second World War, Keynesian policies were adopted across the capitalist world. Economies saw record lows of unemployment and record high levels of economic growth. Keynes's ideas became the new orthodoxy and were particularly attractive to the political left. By the 1970s, however, critics of Keynes's ideas, notably Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman, were gaining ground with politicians in countries like the United States and Britain. 
they argued for a smaller state, free markets, and a reduction in regulation of capitalist enterprise. At the same time, Britain and the United States began to experience high inflation alongside high unemployment, known as stagflation. This phenomenon could not be explained by Keynesian economics, and Keynes's ideas came to be discredited, giving way to those of the neoliberals. Nevertheless, the financial crisis of 2008 jolted policymakers into considering alternatives to neoliberal thinking. When the global economy spiralled into decline, rather than wait for the market to correct itself, the G20 nations announced an economic stimulus package of around 2% of gross domestic product to stimulate growth. As one critic of Keynes wryly conceded, I guess everyone is a Keynesian in a foxhole. To be sure, Keynes's ideas need to be modified to suit the conditions of the contemporary world. But Keynes would approve his was not a static or dogmatic understanding of economics. After all, when asked why in the 1930s he had altered some of the positions on economic policy he had previously held, Keynes famously answered, when the facts change, I alter my conclusions. What do you do, sir? The School of Life isn't just a YouTube channel. It's an actual school. When the facts change, you alter your conclusions. If something you knew as fact is no longer a fact, you have to change it. Like you believe that to Russia collusion was real. And your conclusion was Donald Trump is a Russian agent. And then now it turns out that President Trump is not a Russian agent because there was no Russia collusion and it was paid for by those that are in the state in the house and in the executive office. And some are sitting pretty in some villas to say. Now, John Mayer Keyes had a very radical idea that was supposed to save the world, right? He lost a lot of these points and the result was the Bretton Woods system named after the small town where they came up with it right? The actual thing that they implemented. Now, during that system, there was an agreement. It was an agreement that later became the International Monetary Fund, aka the IMF, that when you see Christine Lagarde stomping into your nation, you know you're fucked. And the World Bank, of course. And they served as a system of managing international trade and currencies for nearly three decades. Like I said, the IMF Actually, do you guys know what, you know, I'm just going to say this and I'm going to look at the chat. Do you guys know what the currency of the IMF is? I mean, I know they, what are the initials of the IMF's currency? Do you guys know IMF currency? Let me take a look. Happy birthday, Sincere. Let's see. I'm taking a look at the messages to see if anybody actually knows what currency the IMF uses. They use debt, but what is the currency they use? So, okay, someone said it there, SDRs. Great, great. SDRs, SDRs. SDRs are debt, basically, right? It's debt. It's a um, a currency that um, relies on the nations that participate in the IMF controlling their money. Uh, it's a special drawing, right? So basically you draw from a drawer that doesn't have money. It's debt. And it was created in uh, 1969 and it's a virtual currency, aka cryptocurrency. Doesn't exist. Its value checks 
um, it, it fluctuates along with the debt in the currencies that are there. So it'll use the euro, um, the British pound, the yen, and the dollar. And they have SDRs in circulation, you know, almost like Bitcoin. See, a lot of people don't know that, right? They've been playing the crypto game for a while, okay? It's a SDR, special drawing rights. So you draw from somewhere, rights, right? It's an actual crypto asset. It's a virtual currency. It doesn't exist. There's no paper money, okay? I'm trying to explain to you that it's not just a fiat currency like the dollar. It's crypto. Do you have bitcoins in your pocket? Fuck no, you don't. They're in your phone. It's bits. It's a fucking cryptocurrency, and they created that in 1969. For all you out there that think you know best, and you think that cryptocurrency was created by just Satoshi, <laughs> that's the OG of freaking cryptocurrency. Oh, and you know what else came out in 1969? I think it was on the Shadowgate movie. The fucking internet. See, a lot of people think... You know, they understand the economy when they're pushing all this Nassara Jassara bullshit, right? That's not how it goes, right? It's, 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 it's pretty interesting. It's pretty interesting, okay? There's a lot of these things that you think are new, but they're actually old, okay? That's, that's, that's basically it. They're actually old, okay? So they created this cryptocurrency through the IMF and they addressed the issues that they had with the currency. Like um, the problem that they have with international trade basically is that things are in teeter-totter, right? Some countries have a lot of shit to export while others, you know, have big trade deficits. Like, for example, you know, let's pretend, oh, let me think of a country, um, or like Greece, for example, I know that for a fact because I have olive groves. And when we go to the oil guy, we take all our olives to the oil person. And so always every every four years, you get the good, good fruit, right? That's when you get the good fruit. It's like a cycle. And the other years, you still get fruit, you know, the 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 actual olives, but the, the, the oil's not fantastic. But anyway, when you take the oil, you keep a ton for your family and then you just sell the rest because that gets exported and rebottled into shit you see at Walmart, Carrefour, you know, and, and Aldi and all that. So basically, um, this, um, this economy uh, that Greece has, let's pretend they only exported oil. They only export oil, but they got to import milk. They have to import, you know, I don't know, carrots and strawberries. And they might not have the money to pay that. So then they have a deficit. Right. They owe money. It's kind of like the fight that that Russia had with Ukraine, where, you know, Ukraine got all this natural gas coming from Russia and they owed them like two point eight billion dollars. And they're like, what are you doing? You're not paying us. Right. So there's a teeter totter totter balance between nations and who has surplus, who has deficit, right? Because they're not all in the same power of exporting and not because they don't have products, but more so because of the infrastructure, right? Of course. So this is why I believe that the IMF was the worst thing possible because it only benefited nations that were actually developed. And those that were underdeveloped are now called fair trade. It's like, you know, handouts, they pay them pennies on a dollar. They're like, buy our coffee at $5 a cup and it's fair trade and fair trade. Fair, you pay them a dollar for a day of work. But anyway, I digress. So this, this, um, 
the system that was put in, um, that there was no like actual mechanism to put the the surplus that one nation had into the, the deficit of another nation, right? And that is what spirals, you know, crises and countries getting loans. Um, if you remember correctly, uh, we talked about the people that had the Planned Parenthood. Did we talk about it or was I talking about it on Korean TV? Or freaking, oh, I do so many interviews with foreign ones. I don't even tell everybody about it because it's like, you have no idea what my day is like. But anyway, I, I think I was talking about this. May have talked about it on my show too. But um, I was talking about how the these brothers, I think I wrote about it too. Damn it. What is wrong with me? How am I not remembering? Um, so there were these, these um, Latinos that had come up from Venezuela and Clinton embraced them and they funded the shit out of her because they had the labs that did the baby parts, right? And what they had done also was that they were um, exporting goods, but then they were also importing and they left a deficit to, yeah, we did talk about it, to Uruguay and Argentina and they were chasing them down too. And they were charging the country of Venezuela because they were importing products from those nations to feed Venezuelans and Venezuela didn't pay the tab. But then the, the Venezuelans said it was those guys and those guys were under Clinton and Obama protection. So it was a big deal. This is how it happens. That's where the IMF step in, steps in and says, okay, you have a deficit. Let me help you. In exchange, I own your country. So now they give a deficit. And that's the problem with these Brent Woods um, issues of ad hoc measures and what Jonathan Keynes, um, John, May John Maynard Keynes, oh my God, why did I say Jonathan Keynes, uh, put together. There's trade imbalances. And um, it's supposed to fix the deficit side to make it, you know, balanced, but it never happened because we left Africa in the dark or right. That's why it's called the dark continent, right? Cause they have no power. So the IMF was actually tasked with figuring out which countries have deficit issues. And the deficit isn't because they don't have shit to export is because they don't have the infrastructure. How the fuck is Congo going to export whatever they have, right? When they don't even have lights to turn on and running water. Right. That's what doesn't make sense. So instead, what they say is we're going to take the surplus and we're just going to hand it over and we're going to keep the rest. Right. Keep the rest. <laughs> so fucking stupid. And then they and then they own these nations. Right. So. But now that jig is up. Right. Nations are not accepting it anymore. They see the IMF and they break out in a rash, like an allergic reaction. And the World Bank and the IMF are completely toast. I mean, it's been a train wreck since 2019. They've been dead in the water. You know, after Jim Young Kim, you know, leaves the World Bank, you know, the Chinese guy that was running the World Bank, and Ivanka was out researching to see who they find, it all came to the surface that, you know, uh, John Maynard Keynes and um, Brent, uh, Bretton Woods, right, were telling them that if you put up this system, this IMF system or whatever, it's going to fucking collapse, right? And basically, they're on life support now. So the only way to fix it, right, is to destroy it, right? You got to torch it. But see, they don't want to just torch it because then they don't have your teat to suck on anymore. Right. They don't have your teeth to suck on anymore. And they don't look at you as individual people. They see you as a money-making territory. Right. 
So you've got the United States that's looking at France, that's looking at Venezuela, that's looking at Ecuador as money, right? Money, just as one, you know, unit. And the problem that they have now is that, um, you know, just like the internet that they gave the people accidentally, right? Accidentally, they wanted to control them through it. And Bitcoin came along, which emulated the SDR that the IMF had. And this, you can say, is a two double-edged sword, actually. Because it can work to maintain decentralized currency, imitating um, uh, being of a comparative value to that of the um, everyday life currency outside of cyberspace, right? This is why it's valued. You can sell your Bitcoin for 30 grand. 40 grand, 50 grand, right? But when there is no dollar and there is no euro, what the fuck are you going to sell it for? I'm asking a legit question. What are you going to sell it for? Now, don't get me wrong. This isn't going to happen from one day to another. But even though people say, you know, this isn't, it's all being rolled out as you see it. And the thing is, Kind of like the post that I made yesterday, as things are going every day, you're in it. So you can't see it. It's like losing weight. Have you guys ever heard this where you like you're on a diet and then you lose some weight and then, you know, um, you don't see it. And then you see your friend two weeks later and they're like, holy crap, did you lose weight? And you're like, what? I don't really feel like it, but I have been dieting and I've been working out. And so, yeah, I feel slimmer. Right. You see it later. Kind of like how in 2021 you were writing all these letters putting all these stickers, doing all these banners and billboards, right? And filing all these lawsuits. And while you were doing it, you were like, go, 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 go. But then you're like, oh, um, do we really do anything? And then you get to 2022 and you look back at 2021 and you're like, fuck, we did that. Well, this is how the money's moving to now. The money has been changing since Bitcoin came. So it's been there for a while. And it's been going slowly and slowly and slowly and slowly, right? It's just been moving slowly. Now, what, there's two ways that this can work out. You crush the World Bank and the IMF, and then you back cryptocurrencies based on gold and silver. Now, then you have to focus on seeing which countries have the most gold and silver. That way it can be, you know... um, uh, supported. There are many countries that do not have gold and silver, and that would be in their <laughs> their concern. So that's one way. Another way to have full control is to do away with all currencies. And this doesn't happen from one day to another. You do away with all currencies, you attract more people into the crypto market. And then one day you flip a switch. Suddenly, the value of your Bitcoin, the value of your Ethereum, the value of your SHIB, everything you have is now the value of whoever flipped the switch. The person that flipped the switch, the person that flipped the switch will now give value to those coins. And that's it. It's game over. Now, that won't happen right away but it only needs a flip of a switch. And I've seen a flip of a switch in currency. I have seen that with my own eyes. My own eyes. I remember when I was, uh, you know, visiting my parents in Greece in the late 90s and 
Um, I would pop in and see them wherever I was traveling. I'd stop in for a couple of days and see them. I would see that, you know, I could buy a pack of cigarettes for 500 drachmas. I could buy a car for 2 million drachmas, right? I could go out to dinner for 10,000 drachmas, you know, like a big dinner with a lot of friends. Okay. That's a lot. I could do all that. And then suddenly in the 2000s, early 2000s, we're talking 2000 right? Late 2000. There was a switch. You had some time to exchange your money. Suddenly, the equivalent didn't make sense. My pack of cigarettes went up higher from 500 drachmas. They were actually 2000 drachmas, but it was only a couple euros. So I didn't see the difference because each euro was about 400, 300 drachmas or 250. So they changed it. Who controlled that price change? Suddenly, the apartment you used to buy for 5 million, which is about, you know, 2,000 euros. And you're like, you could buy an apartment for 2,000 euros? Guess what happened? All those with euros bumped into Greece and took over. They infiltrated in because they had the money. So now the Greek money was worthless. It was nothing. I saw the flip. I literally saw the flip. And the flip, when it comes down to going from actual physical currency to digital currency, again, it will not happen overnight. But this decade, this specific decade of 2020 to 2030, will depict how that goes. Will it be a globalized flip the switch currency, just like it happened to Greece? Or will it be controlled by the people and be extremely decentralized, backed on something tangible? This is the decade that sorts it out. The infrastructure has been going on since 1969. So I'm trying to make that clear. And I try to explain other times because a lot of people talk about crypto. All right. And, um, uh, you know, I'm not fully knowledgeable on crypto. Um, but what I did tell you is that XLM, uh, which is Stellar Lumens, right, uh, suddenly struck a deal to be doing all the conversion transactions for PayPal, meaning that all PayPal dollars are converted into that currency and then spit out into currency again. I wanted you to pay attention to that. And obviously that's centered in Ukraine. So we'll see how that goes, right? <laughs> see how that goes. I have, I have a couple hundred of those, right? <laughs> so whatever. I don't have a massive portfolio, but whatever, right? The thing is, you know, that is where it happens. They're using these, if you guys read, and I urge you, I know there's a lot of apps out there. A lot of people are pushing Coinbase. Um, there's crypto.com where you can educate yourself. Um, they're actually quite safe per se because they're so backed by big companies that it would be a nightmare if something went wrong with that one. And they host all the like crypto conferences and stuff. But you can see a lot of articles. And the thing that people need to look at is not to see what people are buying, but see when that blockchain was spit out. Because there's blockchains on there from like 2014 that are like pennies, but their highest high was like $3,000. Nobody looks at it because they don't know what it is right? They don't know what to look at. And what they do is, you know, you have to look at how many coins are circulating, how many are the total coins that they have. Because if you see a cryptocurrency that has a hundred million coins, let's say, for example, um, in, 
you know, total, but only 50 million are circulated. Then you're like thinking, well, what if the guy that has, there's only one guy that has that 50 million and they're hiding it. And one day they wake up and sell it. Kind of like what happened with Shiba Inu. They gave, you know, uh, all this SHIB and then he donates a billion to it and sells it, like drops it to India to help them. And everybody that had SHIB, it suddenly tanked, right? It suddenly tanked. You know, it was at that point that the SHIB I had was like, whoa, it was like a quarter million dollars. I was like, ding. And then, you know, in a couple of days, it was like two and a half grand. <laughs> it's like, oh, you know, because that's what you have to look for. You have to be paying attention to these simple things, right? That's all. I wonder why it says that my live stream has ended sometimes. Have you guys seen that? Are you guys seeing that too? It, it said it on my page that my live stream ended, which is so bizarre on Rumble. Like, seriously, it's like they're trying to even remove me from Rumble. I'm just so, this is so bizarre. Anyway, yeah, let's get back to the topic of, of concern here. Now, since the World Bank and the IMF are in crisis, and we're seeing that a lot of moves are being made by the Biden regime to actually implement cryptocurrency, right? And a lot of states are starting to introduce their own cryptocurrency. What you have to be aware of is how they are implementing it and why. You're already seeing stores telling you, yeah, you have to pay with exact dollars or card because we don't have coins, right? And I talked about the coin shortage a long time ago, right? And a lot of people don't seem to see the writing on the wall. This is how you look back, like look over your shoulder and say, well, that's weird. Well, that's weird. You can't connect the dots forward. You can only connect them backwards. Hence why I'm here. I'm connecting them from a forward position backwards. Obviously you can't remember everything, but you remember some stuff. <laughs> you remember some stuff. Now, before I go tonight, obviously tomorrow I'm not going to be on. Um, I wanted to say, there's an old saying that it says that March comes in like a lion, goes out like a lamb, right? And that was based on weather. Other people say it's astrological. Other people say, oh, it's because Jesus is, rep you know, represented by the lion and the lamb. Actually, it's the eagle and the, and the lion, but whatever. Um, but <coughs> I think we're, you know, we're in opposite world right now, right? We're in like a mad world. It's freaking insane, right? Freaking insane. Speaking of mad world and freaking insane, you know what? I really have to do this. I need you guys to see a little bit of Chomsky. Okay. Wait, he's just going to tell you a little bit about the Marshall Plan before we go. I, it's just a four minute clip, but I really want you guys to hear him talk about this. There was a huge rebuilding effort in Germany under uh, the Marshall Plan. And in Germany, it's seen um, in the mainstream perception in historical literature. It's seen as a very noble endeavor. Um, it was based on uh, principles of cooperation and so forth and so on. However, in your book titled Understanding Power, you write, and let me quote you here, Marshall Plan was designed largely as an export promotion operation for American business not as the noblest effort in history, and it failed. Can you please elaborate on that, please? Uh, that's approximately what it did. Uh, most of the Marshall Plan uh, money actually was transferred uh, 
uh, from one bank to another in the United States. Uh, part of the Marshall, there was a big problem at the time, a major problem of uh, uh, over of uh, uh, industri industrial production. The U.S. had a big surplus of industrial production, and the world just didn't have markets. The world was virtually devastated by the war. So part of the attempt to create markets for U.S. excess production was what I described before, uh, ensuring that the former colonial areas would provide dollars through the, to Europe so they could purchase U.S. industrial production. It's called triangular trade programs. Another was the Marshall Plan, which did provide funding uh, to purchase American exports. In the course of it, Europe did develop, uh, incidentally, about, I think, uh, probably $2 billion or so of the $13 billion uh, went for uh, oil imports. That was part of the U.S. effort to turn Europe into an oil-dependent economy. The United States controlled the oil. Europe had coal, not oil. And the uh, same in Japan, to try to turn them into oil-dependent economies. The region, the reason, which was, again, expressed clearly by George Kennan, was uh, that if we did that, we would have what he called veto power over their policies, because we would essentially control the energy spigots. Uh, so all of that was, uh, it's not to deny, but in fact it's true, that it did help European recovery to some extent, uh, how much is argued, but to some extent it did uh, develop the European economy, but it was also a big boost to the United States. In fact, uh, if you look at the business literature in the United States, uh, they describe this program correctly as uh, the source of the modern multinational corporation that provided opportunities for uh, the U.S. multinationals then beginning to develop uh, expansive, extensively uh, to move into Europe as a major uh, place uh, area for investment, production, uh, marketing, and so on. So as a, like most uh, governments uh, don't aren't um, altruistic uh, institutions, they're working for their interests. And that means the interests of dominant elements within the society. And uh, they can sometimes have beneficial effects, but those are rarely the driving forces, not just the United States, anyone else as well. So that was pretty good. It was a kind of summary. It wasn't bad, right? It wasn't bad. Now, the only thing we can do is that for the next, um, I would have to say, the most crucial part is 2025. Because that is where the point of no return would go, because the implementation is supposed to happen in 2030. And um, hopefully with the efforts of many people and many people that are not named or maybe named and not acknowledged and many people like you that are fighting every day will indeed be able to take control of the perception of the way the economy is shaped. The economy, unfortunately, is shaped by taking all nations as units. What we have to do is ensure that to, in, to keep control of the money, we have to be in control of the government. The reason they're in control of our money and our prosperity is because they are in control of the money. They print it as they like. They sell it as they like. 
They trade it as they like. They give it away as they like. And it's not theirs to do. It is ours. So the way we control the economy is by controlling the government. And this is how you decentralize your economy and keep it a well and good, balanced (laughs) economy that goes on for eons. And the only way to decentralize is to quash the idea of a global currency that they're hoping to do. Now, going back to my comes in like a lion, goes out like a lamb. Since this is a mad world we live in, what you are going to see is that March came in like a lamb, but it's going out with a fucking roar. And it so begins. The next 60 days will be so upsetting to many, both on the left, on the right, in the middle, downstairs, upstairs. It's going to be pure havoc. It's in June that the pivots will start to be apparent. I said that by August, we will be delivering the birth pains, you know, coming into the first nine months, right? Nine months of pregnancy. And here's where it comes. There will be tears being had. (laughs) I can tell you that. So maybe this is the April showers. But what kind of tears is different? So for those of you that have been lucky enough to invest in gold and silver, congrats. Because that'll be something that's tangible that will never lose its value. It hasn't lost its value for eons. But it will not be a currency that can be exchanged. I am hoping that we can use it as a foundation to regulate a more unified credit, a U.S. credit, because that's how it's going to turn out, to identify value of decentralized currencies. So um, with that, I want to bid you guys a fantastic evening. And I think I should go with this rendition of Mad World. God bless.